Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 11 of the Nitro Mania podcast. My name is Adam. I'm your host, and this is the show that threatens my very sanity each and every week. I do hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Henry Hugepex as much as I did. It was an absolute pleasure having him on the show. I do hope he will come back again later on down the line. Uh, last week on Nitro, as you, as you heard, if you listened to last week, we were only promised one thing, the giant defending his WCW championship that uh, I'm not actually sure is his. Oh, and there's a blue locker room and a red locker room and fans get to make the matches and I can't see how that would ever go wrong. With that said, let's jump right into the thick of things tonight. It is Monday, November 6th, 1995, and we are coming to you live from Jacksonville, Florida. That's like four weeks in a row that they've actually told us where they are. We immediately go to the commentary booth where Mongo tells us that Pepe is dressed as a clown in honor of Jimmy Hart. Shut up. They give us the phone number to call to vote for the matches tonight, and it is a 99 cents per minute 900 number. I swear to God, they they will try to make money off of people any way that they can. The red locker room contains Ric Flair, Meng, Diamond Dallas Page, the Blue Bloods, oddly enough, Big Bubba, Shark, and Scott Norton. Though, they probably shouldn't be in the same locker room, Shark and Scott Norton. In the blue locker room, we have Sting, Johnny B. Bad, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Dave Sullivan, Alex Wright, the Nasty Boys, and J.L., who I assume is Mr. J.L. They just didn't title him as such for whatever reason. Now, I think it's obvious here that they're looking for people to vote for Ric Flair versus Sting. Bischoff even basically tells people that that's what they should vote for. But I really wish that the internet of today had been around back then, because we definitely would have ended up with a Mason Ryan situation and gotten, like, Scott Norton versus Alex Wright or something like that. Also, Dave Sullivan is available to vote for and has never appeared on Nitro. Hmm. Anyway, we're then informed that Macho Man is injured, but he is here and he's also crazy. These two things are likely unrelated. Your opening contest this evening is Cobra versus The Giant with Jimmy Hart. In a nice change of pace, they've decided to not have the ring announcer come through the TV feed, but have the theme songs instead. So we can barely hear Dave Penzer as he announces the two participants. Giant enters the ring, picks David Penzer up, and demands that he announce that this is a WCW championship match. Penzer, with piss dribbling down his thigh, does so, and the bell rings. Giant choke slams Cobra, pins him, and the bell rings again. I didn't think it would be possible for WCW to have a match shorter than that Macho Man versus Meng match at Halloween Havoc so quickly, but hey, here we are. The time of the fall, 18 seconds, about an eighth as long as the pay-per-view match. Bischoff then sends us back to Mean Gene and the Red Locker Room, which isn't red at all. As predicted, Shark and Captain Arby's start to get into it immediately, and Gino shows us that the Blue Bloods are sitting in the back reading and drinking tea. Those fucking assholes. Shouldn't the Blue Bloods be in the Blue Room? Anyway, over in the Blue Room, which is actually blue, uh, it is absolute chaos, as Hacksaw Jim Duggan is just pacing in front of Tony Schiavone, who is doing his best to get out the information the fans need to vote. I mean, all Hacksaw is grunting and pacing and literally throwing furniture around, something commentary told us that Macho Man was doing earlier in the day. 
Uh, Brian Knobs also gets into the act while Alex Wright looks like he'd rather be anywhere else but in that room. There are also tracking issues on whatever tape they copied this over from for the network. That was fun. Let's never do it again. Back from break, we check in with Hulk Hogan in Venice Beach, or at least some ranting madman playing electric guitar who is wearing a visor around a turban and has flowers tucked into the head of his guitar. Oh, uh, Hogan and Savage are sitting on opposite sides of this, let's say, maniac. Uh, Hogan starts the promo by telling us that they've replaced Jimmy Hart with, quote, the head of the war games from Venice Beach, our main man, brother. This gentleman, who I'm fairly certain is 100% plastered, spends the entire promo waving his hands around, trying to talk over Hogan and Macho Man, and generally acting like he wasn't consulted about being a part of this vignette and wants absolutely nothing to do with it. Why you wouldn't, I don't know, retape this without this crazy person, I don't know, but then again, I'm not Eric Bischoff. Uh, Macho Man has apparently joined Hogan on the dark side as he is now wearing black and white, foreshadowing alert. This, um, this segment was absolutely ridiculous and awful, and you need to go back and watch it. Bischoff also tells us that the guitar man has, was, quote, a little Jimi Hendrix, so more foreshadowing all over the place for next summer's heel turn. Eric also covers his ass by telling us that the Hogan bit was filmed earlier this afternoon, and then Macho Man hopped a plane from Venice Beach and flew to Jacksonville, Florida. So, despite being injured, which he showed no sign of during that bit, and despite not being cleared to compete, he made sure to show up at Nitro after being with Hogan on the complete other side of the country. I'd say that makes perfect sense. Enter Kevin Sullivan with Jimmy Hart. Uh, Renegade runs to the ring. Sullivan actually wins the match, surprisingly enough, when Jimmy Hart throws a cup of what we're told is beer into Renegade's face and wipes the paint, uh, wipes the face paint R off, all the while yelling that he's not the Renegade, he's a nobody, and that he's just Rick. Bobby confirms that Jimmy said his name was Rick. Just in case you were curious. Will this actually become something? Something tells me that it won't. This match really only exists to confirm that Jimmy Hart really is a bad guy now, because I guess his coming out for the 18-second world title match didn't. Really nothing, nothing special here. Uh, we're sent back to the red locker room again. Uh, Shark and Norton continue to fight, then the lights go out. This is an absolute shit show. Uh, Flair rants like a crazy person, and again, basically tells us that the main event is Flair versus Sting, whether that's what gets voted for or not. Now, I'm not saying WCW rigged the voting, or didn't actually count the votes, or go by the votes, but we've been to the locker rooms three times now, and Flair and Sting are the only ones who've been allowed to speak. Anyway, this weekend on WCW Saturday Night, Arn Anderson takes on Kurosawa, Disco Inferno debuts his music video, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan goes to Ireland. Up next, another great cruiserweight match. Chris Benoit takes on Eddie Guerrero once again. By the way, no sign of that stupid lion this week. During this match, we get a far too long shot of what Bischoff calls a, quote, Japanese contingent sitting at a table in the crowd. He actually names Sonny Ono this week, also at the table, not mentioned at all, is Jushin Thunder Liger. We finally go back to the ring for Eddie leaping from the top rope onto Benoit in the aisle in a beautiful spot, 
And at this point, I noticed that WCW actually seems to have hired a third referee, though I don't know his name. Meanwhile, back in the ring, uh, Benoit hits Guerrero with one of the stiffest looking power bombs I have ever seen, but only gets a two count. I would not be surprised if Guerrero got a concussion of some kind right then. Bischoff continues to tell us to vote for the main event while also basically telling us that the main event is Flair versus Sting. The ending to the match comes after Eddie counters a back suplex from the apron into the ring and Benoit cannot kick out because his feet are under the ropes. Physics. Heenan begins screaming for a replay while Bischoff and Mongo tell him basically to shut the fuck up because the match is over and too bad. Who's the heel on this announce team? Anyway, we go back to the blue room where Sting speaks again while Dave Sullivan cuddles a bunny. The Nasty Boys try to yell at the Blue Bloods, but Tony Schiavone cuts them off to send us to commercial because fuck you, it's Sting versus Rick. After break, we're back to commentary for the shocking result that your main event is Sting and Ric Flair. It's almost as if they made people pay money to vote for a predetermined outcome. I am calling 100% horseshit on this fan vote, basically, is what I'm saying. Now, remember, last week on Nitro, Flair basically promised us that we would find out the fourth horseman tonight. So, if this hadn't been voted for the main event, when would that have happened, if it even happens at all? Most of the first act of this match takes place outside the ring, to absolutely no count from referee Randerson. From what I can tell, watching this match, Sting is almost completely impervious to Flair's attacks inside the ring, and almost completely... pervious? Maybe? whatever the word is, to them outside on the floor. Bischoff promises huge news at the end of the broadcast, will not shut up about it, and is kind of being an asshole about not telling us what it is. This match also reminds me of one of those pro-wrestling physics things that has always bugged me. When a heel, in this case Ric Flair, puts his feet on the second rope during a cover, during a pinfall, how does that make it harder for the wrestler being pinned to kick out? There's less body weight on top of him thanks to the ropes, so it should be easier. I mean, grabbing the ropes makes sense during a, a submission because you can change your body angle, add more torque to the maneuver, whatever, but it, it never made sense to me on the pinfall spot. If anyone cares to try to explain this to me, please do so at rundownwrestling at gmail.com or on Twitter at rundownpodcast. Because I still, it's been, I've been watching wrestling for almost 30 years at this point, and I still don't understand. Anyway. Back to the match, Randerson tries to get Sting to stop beating up Flair on the corner, face move, and Sting actually picks Randerson up and puts him on the top turnbuckle in the opposite corner. This gives Flair time to pull out some taped object that I suppose is supposed to imitate brass knuckles and clock Sting with them. This, however, only gets a two-count for Flair as Sting goes back to completely no-selling Flair's moveset. Sting hits Flair with a rare superplex and locks him in the Scorpion Deathlock, which Flair soon submits to. Sting refuses to release the hold, however, which brings out the two other referees. Bischoff says that Luger is coming out, but we have no sign of him on camera. Instead, Eddie Guerrero and Mr. JL hit the ring. Heenan tries to cover for Bischoff's premature ejaculation by saying that Luger got sidetracked and is talking to some WCW officials. Bischoff says, no, those officials have cut Luger off and are keeping him from the ring. Basically, the entire blue locker room ends up in the ring to finally peel Sting off of Flair, and yet, after all that, Randerson never reverses his decision, something he was very quick to do after the Sabu-Mr. JL match just nine short weeks ago. 
Bischoff tells us that the crowd is reacting to Luger breaking through security as Sting rushes the ring to put Flair back in the deathlock, and then we finally get a shot of Luger oh! slowly walking down the aisle and getting into the ring. Luger, by the way, is wearing the worst fucking pants I've ever seen. Think like a wide pinstripe zoot suit, but just the pants. Luger gets right in Sting's face to apparently try and talk some sense into him. Sting calmly releases the hold and leaves with Luger to the bewilderment of everyone in the ring and on commentary. We come back from break to Mean Gene in the ring with Jimmy Hart, Kevin Sullivan, and the Giant. Gene tells us that this is a travesty because Giant isn't champion. Jimmy then informs us that while Hogan was out making shitty movies, he had the power of attorney, a phrase he repeats ad nauseum, and was taking care of business. Mean Gene confirms this information, and Jimmy basically repeats the first thing he said in its entirety. Jimmy says that he's the one who signed the contract for the match at Halloween Havoc. Hogan never even looked at it. Jimmy tells us that the stipulation on the contract states that if Hogan gets disqualified, he loses the title, which makes the Giant the actual WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Mean Gene then brings a lawyer from WCW into the ring. The lawyer confirms that Jimmy did have power of attorney, but that the Giant is not the world champion. The lawyer, whose name I've already forgotten, has been speaking with Nick Bockwinkle and the WCW Championship Committee, and he is going to read an official statement. The lawyer then informs us that while the contract did state that Hogan would lose the title were he to be disqualified, due to the, quote, dubious nature of that disqualification, the WCW world title will be vacated, and that the winner of the World War III Battle Royal will be crowned the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Giant refuses to relinquish the title. Uh, Kevin Sullivan eventually hands the belt over after stating, basically, that the Giant is going to win the Battle Royal anyway. Back at the desk, Bischoff calls this earth-shattering news as the crowd begins to chant for Hogan. Brain loses his mind over this. Mongo makes the exact same clown joke he made at the beginning of the show. Because he's a moron. Next week on Nitro, Randy Savage takes on Mang again for some reason. Eddie Guerrero challenges Johnny B. Bad for the television championship, and Sting also challenges Dean Malenko. While I'm sure that those last two matches will be good, they're kind of... odd. We've had no build towards a Guerrero TV title shot, and why the hell would the current United States champion, something that wasn't even mentioned tonight, face Dean Malenko? This tells me that neither of those matches is going to go as planned. All in all, this was a pretty good episode of Nitro. Honestly, I think this is the episode that should have aired last week. Put the fan voting bullshit aside. Giant defends his title in a squash match against Cobra. Flair and Sting destroy each other. Leave the Horseman promo there last week. Get rid of that horrid Luger-Meng tag match from last week. Keep the bizarre Hogan promo and the twist on the World War III this week. And you could have had Giant defend his title again in another squash this week. Keep the Renegade thing this week, if it's actually going to go anywhere. Now, if you go back and watch anything from this episode of Nitro, if I had to pick one thing, honestly, it would be that Hogan Macho Man promo. It is just so out of left field weird that I feel like you all need to watch it, because I am positive that my description from before is not going to do it justice at all. Then skip ahead a couple minutes and watch the Eddie Benoit match, because of course that was great. 
Meanwhile, over on Monday Night Raw, in another episode recorded in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada, the British Bulldog defeated Marty Jannetty. Henry O. Godwin and Terry Richards fought to a no contest. Kama defeated Tony Roy. And in your main event, the team of Isaac Yankum and Jerry Lawler defeated the team of Bret Hart and Hakushi by disqualification. That episode of Raw drew a 2.6 rating, while this episode of Nitro only drew a 2.3. I guess the fans were still reeling from last week's stink fest. Elsewhere in the world on November 6th, 1996, American actress Anita Corso died following a battle with cancer. Corso, probably most well-known for her portrayal of schoolteacher Helen Crump on The Andy Griffith Show. Also, Cleveland Browns owner Art Modell caused controversy by announcing that following the 1995 NFL season, the team would be moving to Baltimore. This caused such an uproar that subsequent legal actions by the city of Cleveland and the Browns season ticket holders led the NFL to broker a compromise that saw the Browns' history, records, and intellectual property remain in Cleveland. In return, Modell was permitted to move his football organization to Baltimore, where he established the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens are officially regarded by the NFL as an expansion team that began play in 1996. The city of Cleveland agreed to demolish Cleveland Stadium and build a new stadium on the same site, and the NFL agreed to reactivate the Browns by the 1999 season through either an expansion draft or a relocated franchise. The Browns were officially reactivated in 1998 through the expansion process and resumed play in 1999. Thanks, Wikipedia. <clears throat> That's probably the most you'll ever hear about football on this show. And on that note, folks, that is it for me here on episode number 11 of the Nitro Mania podcast. Please send me emails to rundownwrestling at gmail.com. Tweet me at rundownpodcast. Be sure to tune into this Thursday's episode of the Rundown. And if you want to see me in person, be sure to come out to Liberty States Wrestling Presents. Heard you missed us. We're back next Saturday, the 9th of September, at the John McCarthy Elementary School in Peabody, Massachusetts. And remember, until next time, folks. Pull up your socks and get ready. Sup, bitches. We're Pwn Stars, a video game podcast about developers, one host's obsession with Genji's butt, and other random shit. Also, we give you gaming news that you probably already knew the fuck about. Who likes Ganges, but who knows? Just ask us. So join us every week for your dose of random gaming. So random, half the time, we don't even know what the fuck we're going to talk about. Josh, got anything to add? I don't do good with the short stuff, only the long stuff. That's what she said. Giggity. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and always on the Questionable Never Network. That episode of... Uh.